blossoms are blooming. I'll see you in the afternoon and take a trip down the Good morning, good afternoon, and welcome. This is another episode of Miss Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Angelo Gonzalez, and I'm here with my colleague and good friend, Ben Benjamin Willem. Um, great to have you on the on the podcast today. Um, beautiful day in sunny sunny Monterey, so uh, I'm glad you could join us. Um, so today we're going to discuss East Asia and the experience that Benjamin Willem had and detail and all that went into it. Um, so right off the bat, why don't you get a start us, Ben, with uh, telling us a little bit about, um, you know, your program. Uh, I know you study Chinese. Uh, I know you have a background and influence of this part of the world in your life. So, um, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Great. Um... First of all, thanks a lot for having me, Angelo, and um, obviously, yep, happy to be here doing this, um, although it is pretty nice out, and uh, trip <laughs> to the beach doesn't sound too bad either, but um, yeah, let's get this uh, little interview going. So yes, I've, uh, that's correct, I've definitely had a big influence of East Asia on my life and on my studies over the last um, 10 odd years. Um, and even dating back before that to uh, the beginning of undergrad. Um, and basically, I would say, I'll start from the most recent. So I'm in the International Trade and Economic Diplomacy Program at uh, Middlebury Institute, along with you. Um, and this program, you know, a lot of my interest in it was spurred because of the current trade climate um, and the trade war that's going on with China. Um, obviously, this is like a fascinating issue and is, uh, you know, changing. We're looking at a changing U.S. foreign policy, um, looking at trade as being used as a new tool in uh, global, geopolit global geopolitics and or at least maybe not a new tool, but we're seeing it in a whole new light um, in this uh, modern interconnected globalized world. So, um, going back a little further, I first got interested in China, mostly, um, in East Asia because um, of a philosophy and um, religions class that I took in undergrad. Um, oh, wait, was it even actually before that in high school when I took a world history class? I don't know. Basically, I guess I've always had a lot of interest in um, Asian philosophies and history. Um, China has the oldest history of any country in the world. You know, it goes back 5,000 years. And so I think that looking at um, a lot of the knowledge and um, from, you know, the art of war by Sun, Sun Tzu, uh, looking at the Tao Te Ching by um, Lao Tzu, there's so much wisdom 
that you can find from these cultures. Um, like, you know, East, uh, Westerners have been finding this kind of knowledge from the East and trying to bring back their lessons for so long, looking at like Alan Watts' work. I know you're also familiar with a lot of that stuff. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a lot of what inspired me to get into uh, this interest in East Asia and China. As well as then I started pursuing Mandarin, uh, learning the Mandarin language, and I really fell in love with the character system um, and just the whole um, culture that's so different from what we know in the U.S. I like being exposed to uh, something that gets me out of my comfort zone. And um, if you've ever been to China, and you obviously have now, but um, it's completely different from what we're familiar with in terms of cultural norms in the United States. Um, and I really relish the opportunity to be kind of thrown into the deep end of something very, you know, unfamiliar. Um, I feel like that really helps me to grow. So those are, you know, in a nutshell, why I am interested in this area and why really what uh, is why I ended up on this trip. Right. And so just thinking about those thoughts and ruminations, um, Going into about China, I know that this this fascinating curious, curiosity, you know, from a Western perspective, is something that has been boiling over within. And you know, once you go to a place that you haven't been to, and it's uncharted territory for you as a person uh, from the United States, and you probably have certain, you know, perceptions and uh, expectations, and then. You get there, and then it gets thrown right out the window. I saw that firsthand for myself, and I was just, mm -hmm. you know, uh, kind of in a culture shock. I guess that's what you can call it. And so, I, I know you discussed a little bit about China. As far as uh, Japan on this trip, uh, was there any indication uh, to you that there was a, a, a shift of thinking uh, that was different from your experiences with China? Good question. Um, so my first time in China was in 2012, um, and I went to go study Mandarin intensively for the first time in Beijing. And I remember um, my first time walking around the streets and feeling like stares from people as if, you know, I really felt like an alien. Um, and so that's like, you know, I definitely experienced that culture shock firsthand. Um, feeling like a total outsider, um, not being used to a lot of the customs and uh, way of, just way of interacting with others on the street, um, when you're waiting to get something, when you're dealing with uh, different forms of service. Um, it's, it's quite different um, in, you know, that's referring to China. And thinking about Japan, this was my first time um, visiting Japan, um, we were in Tokyo for about four days, and um, you know my my large impression of what I thought Japan was like was just formed by what I had you know read in history books, what I've heard from friends, um, what I've you know watched on TV, a little bit from you know anime, manga, um, and you know these are the reflections that I had from their culture onto me, and actually going there, like you said. I had these certain expectations, um, and a lot of those were, you know, actually met in Japan because um, I 
really was expecting it to be orderly and polite. And, you know, I knew about this system of uh, honor. Um, I think it's called Bushido. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, but, you know, I definitely, you see that kind of uh, organization on a daily basis of just everything being so, uh, you fought, it's by the rules and people don't seem, at least on the surface level, to deviate from that a lot. Um, and it's quite orderly and peaceful and like this kind of harmony that you see walking around and it's, it's really beautiful. It's something quite stunning that, um, I mean, I guess I, I expected it, but at the same time, it was still, still surprising, um, when you actually are in there living it, getting on the Metro and I'd heard, you know, people are relatively quiet on the Metro, which is not at all the case in the States or in China. And um, uh, it, was, it was interesting walking onto the train and it was like, wow, it's really pretty quiet. You should probably <laughs> whisper or not talk at all. Because um, you don't want to be, you know, that foreigner coming in and just like... Disturbing the peace or anything like that. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I don't want don't to ruffle too many feathers. Interesting, yeah. I mean, for me, it was a similar experience, you know, in the sense that I had expectations. Um, but the ultimate culture shock for Japan was very similar, you know, in the sense that um, uh, you, you speak of uh, Bushido, uh, yeah. and that's, you know, this element of respect that's really valued in their culture. And uh, I know we were discussing uh, Western influence on these two uh, countries and how that might play a role in their development. You know, uh, we had the chance to go into the Yakasuni Shrine and they had a museum set off for the history of, um, you know, just their uh, development pre-1867, uh, I want to say, um, is when the, the West started really getting involved, particularly the U.S., in Japanese affairs. Um, and then you could say the same for, for now, you know, um, with China's development. Um, so how much do you think when you were in these two places for this period of time during the East Asian practicum, um, did you see influences uh, that could be uh, Western? How much do you think it's, it, it's true to their culture? Do they take you know, Western ideas and make it their own in these two parts of the world. Um, could you maybe elaborate on that? Definitely, and this is a, a big question in globalization that, you know, a lot of scholars think about is whether a country, when they're developing, a lot of the times they'll take on aspects of what we call Western culture, like, um, and you know, a lot of the debate is, are they, you know, is it just modernization or is it westernization or is it a combination of the both, of both of them? And, you know, for, if you go to Tokyo, if you go to Beijing, you see a large difference, I think, in, you know, Jap Japanese society is much more, quote unquote, westernized um, and than, than um, China is. And, you know, this raises the question of whether that's more due to, like, their levels of development. Um, but at the same time, there's obviously a huge impact on Japan from, you know, post-World War II 
um, you know, the United States basically rewrote the con Constitution, um, and we went into the Japanese diet and it looked yeah, identical to the Capitol. Exactly, they even modeled it just off the Capitol with the upper house, lower house divided on uh, in relatively symmetrical sides of the uh, the building, and yeah, it's you see a huge influence of uh, Western culture in Japan. Um, but you also see that it's so different and so has just like all these elements that are very, very, very Japanese. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of people who know about Japan know that it's hard to be a foreigner there sometimes because it's not, it's not that they're not um, liked, it's that there's a very strong sense of being Japanese in Japan and pride in that and not really wanting to necessarily um, open that up, let anyone, you know, join their club of like being Japanese and what that means to them. Um, and I mean, I think that that's something that's very essential to a lot of cultures is, you know, really maintaining their culture uh, while still blending it with um, all these outside influences of people, uh, other societies, especially. It's, it's so interesting in Japan because the opening up of Japan in the mid-1800s was not, you know, it started out as definitely a forced thing by the United States. It was not that, you know, Japan chose to go out and open up. Um, and, you know, you definitely see remnants of that kind of sentiment of still not being super accepting of necessarily other societies really becoming a part of their society. They can still be there and interact with it, but right. they're different. Right, and you sort of, I mean, we both study trade and we, we understand that when you have trade relations, um, that that tends to lean to a more positive direction of political relations. Not always, right? You'll have political disputes and territorial disputes. And, but in the case of Japan and U.S. relations, you know, it, it was sort of an apprehensiveness from Japan. And this is all while, you know, Meiji Restoration is going on. So they have their own internal domestic affairs that they're dealing with. And whether or not a country wants to open up or reform, you know, um, we were talking with uh, Professor Hawk on, and, and he's an excellent case study in, in, in an individual of moving to China literally in 1978. Um, and so, to, before we deviate, <laughs> I guess uh, going on the topic of the lectures that you were able to attend, um, we'll first start off in Japan uh, and then we'll uh, go into. Um, China's lectures, uh, the China lecture series when we were in Beijing. But yeah, let's focus on um, what were your major takeaways from the Japanese lectures um, from the speakers there? Hmm. Um, so first, yeah, I think that uh, that's a really good point that you bring up about Professor, um, or the director of the you know, uh, Stanford Center at uh, Beijing University that, um, you know, 
China, he said, and we'll we'll go back, we'll come back to this later when we get back to the Beijing interviews. But he said that the revolutionary in Chinese thought was not necessarily Mao Zedong; it was Deng Xiaoping, who opened up the country in 1979, um, began this process called Gaiga Kaifeng, which is opening and reform, and um, this. He was totally revolutionary to how China had been behaving for, you know, the last few centuries, um, and it's funny because this was also initiated by the United States um, through Kissinger and then Nixon's visit, um, which actually, um, just to you know, kind of complicate matters, in this trilateral relationship, this weird love triangle between. China, Japan, and uh, the U.S.—definitely a love-hate triangle. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know that really. Um, we were talking about it in one of our lectures how that made Japan quite upset. That opening up of China because、mm-hmm. uh, we were supposed to be Japan's ally, you know, and we didn't. There was no notice that we were going to go into China at all. And all of a sudden, this you know caught them off guard, and so it's a very dynamic,、um, ever-changing relationship that is, as you stated, often impacted by trade,、um, by those economic factors, but you know largely also through political relationships and you know being shaped by these geopolitics, like for example the、um, U.S. and or sorry, Chi- yeah, Chinese and American relations warming in the seventies. Uh, but even before Kissinger visited, due to、uh, like mutual opposition to USSR's rising power.、Um, anyway, bringing it back to Japan,、um, I thought that you know these were like all of the lectures that we went to were profoundly interesting.、Um, I thought that one of the coolest points that was brought up. Uh, and this was at where was this、um, the Graduate Institute for Policy Studies、um, mm-hmm. in Japan,、uh, GRIPS I think it's called, and、um, we heard from a Woodrow Wilson International Center、uh, for scholars. He was a global fellow from there, and this doctor was telling us <laughs> he made a really cool point about、uh, China. And about U.S. and about Japan, saying that, you know, often Japanese people think China, think Mao Zedong, because、um, by, you know, initiating this revolution and、um, basically kicking the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, and、uh, Chiang Kai-shek out of China in 1949 to Taiwan,、um, this really enabled. Japan's success through the U.S., at least economic and developmental success, because Japan was United States's like main choice for an ally in the region, because they could be like influenced to take on these new political systems of the U.S. Whereas, if China had remained the Nationalist Party rather than becoming communist,、right. the a lot of the General consensus is that the U.S. would have supported China and would have gone to them straight off the bat as an ally,、um, and 
who knows what would have become of Japan in terms of getting that kind of support. Yeah, that was a big shock. I remember even to Professor Liang, she was just like, oh, you know, <laughs> kind of taken aback by that. Yeah, like, oh, thank you, Mao Zedong. That's how <laughs> Japanese feel. Exactly. <laughs> and we had the opportunity um, to visit, again, uh, the Japanese uh, diet building um, and, you know, stunning architecture, uh, beautiful gardens. Um, we were in the beginning stages of uh, cherry blossom blooming sakura, my namesake of my cat. <laughs> Shout out. Shout out. <laughs> meow, meow. Um, but yeah, I, and those lectures, as precious as they were, I mean, we covered tremendous amount of topics, you know, with Japanese relations to Russia, to China, to U.S., you know, uh, Japan as the status quo power and how that's shifting. Um, I know, you know, we even had the opportunity to discuss with a gentleman who works with uh, the WTO and, you know, how the WTO is shifting. Um, and all that considered, um, for the folks listening, that all these things are incredibly enlightening and, you know, professionally aiding us in our know-how of the region directly. Um, these things will carry on and shape how we think about foreign policy um, and then also how we operate as, as visitors of these countries. Um, I think that was like a big takeaway. And um, f for, for Ben here, uh, if you could dive into something that was like outside the classroom in Japan, outside the classroom when a, a, a memory that, that stuck with you that was just really poignant. Let's see. Outside the classroom, well, you know, I was so focused on my studies there that, like, <laughs> there was kind of no opportunity to think outside the classroom. Um, <laughs> well, I think that a lot of the thoughts from, you know, the meetings and the classroom carries over into, you know, other forms of waking life where you're just walking around and having fun and you might have a little realization about something that you discussed in a meeting. For example, um, when we were eating lunch together in the Park Hyatt uh, in Tokyo, I remember we started discussing multilateralism in a sense um, that reflected back on what we had discussed with the, um, what was it, at Métis, um, which is the, uh, what is this in Japan? The Ministry, Ministry of... of Something that starts with the E and then trade. And trade and international oh. and I can't find it in my notes. Miti, look it up, people. Google yes, it. anyway. The guy was saying um, that, you know, the EU and Japan and the US are all working together now. <clears throat> Losing my voice? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's back. all the, the great air from uh, uh -huh. know, oh, the man. time there. There it is. Okay, so we got it. The Ministry of Economy, Trade and industry. So we heard from the principal deputy director of the multilateral trade system department there in the Trade Policy Bureau. Your boy had to whip out the business card. So. That's right. So <laughs> I was able to nail that. PhD. Anyway, <laughs> he uh, was saying that the EU, the US, and Japan are working together to revise the WTO and this uh, multilateral um, 
you know, system of how do we go about making these agreements? It's very difficult to come to agreements when you need consensus from all countries. It's also very difficult to come to an agreement when you work under the principle of a single undertaking, which means that nothing's agreed upon until all points are agreed upon. And that's difficult, folks. That is really it difficult. is not easy, as uh, Angelo and I have learned from our um, international trade negotiation simulation class, also with uh, Dr. Liang at Middlebury Institute. Um, just, it's so hard to get all of the countries on the same page. I mean, that's why, like, in our voting system, we don't say, you know, you need 100% in order for someone to become, get elected. We just do a majority. Obviously, that leads to a lot of issues as well. But requiring 100% consensus from all countries, from all member countries, is extremely difficult. And, you know, I thought about this. We were thinking about this process of how they're trying to potentially make the WTO more efficient by, you know, maybe rethinking those rules so that something can actually get done. Mm. But at the same time, you know, that kind of sacrifices the ideal of needing all countries to be in agreement on something. Like the whole point of this multilateral system is that everyone benefits and that everyone has to make compromises in order for us to move forward. Um, and by saying, you know, we're going to put that to the side in the sake of, you know, actually getting something done in progress, you know, you're having to sacrifice your ideals in order to get there, which is, you know, there's not a yes or no answer to what should be done. It's just, food for thought, what should we do um, in this case? And yeah, what do you think? <laughs> Meanwhile, we're drinking jasmine tea on the 52nd floor in the Park Hyatt. <laughs> Inspired by yours truly, Bill Murray. Shout out if you listen to this, Bill. I love all your films. Um, Lost in Translation. Oh my God. I mean, where do I start? I mean, WTO, if you don't know, folks, World Trade Organization, Geneva, Got to check it out, amongst other international organizations. Um, and if you don't get a chance, uh, just being aware of what this organization entails for the world is pretty expansive. Um, and it eventually works as a check and balances system in the world of international trade um, between countries, both developed and developing. And then new concept ideas like a unique case like China, uh, which we're still working out the inner details of how we can classify their country. Um, and there's so many different uh, ways in which I think we were uh, curious to hear the Japanese perspective of what WTO reforms look like uh, going into the future. And there is a sense of fuzziness. You know, we're facing you know, an organization that has the capacity uh, in three different ways, right? We have the settlement dispute system. Um, we have uh, appellate body, which right now is up in the air because they have, what is it, three, three appellate body members? I think that's all they have left right now. And yeah. that's enough to stay functional, right? And then by December, in the the next appellate body member will be up to not be you know elected again so they'll have another official or there's potentially like there won't be another appellate body member due to the US checking that so 
Yeah, they're not approving any new judges. So when their term expires, yeah, that's that's what do we it. Do? But yeah. it's dysfunctional. Um, so are we looking at you know a reform that is likely to happen uh, from single undertaking to discussing uh, the issues in our negotiations online multilateral basis through the WTO on a issue by issue case, or are we seeing the changing of the guard? Is something deeper happening here. Um, there are more questions than answers, um, I think, in this sort of institution. Um, but importantly, uh, you know, we are the generation that are going to be shaping uh, these institutions and I'm going to be, be keeping a close watch, watchful eye on um, just future negotiations as they stand. I'm, I, I'm, I can speak for myself and, you know, in our class we have a uh, a course where we're negotiation, negotiating the Doha round has been uh, at a stalemate since 2008 and I'm Brazil and literally we're on the bus in China and Professor Liang looks at me and she's like, hey, Brazil's now a developed country, shift your position. I'm like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me, Bolsonaro? You're busting my, oh, I won't even say it, but, um, you know, so looking into the future and sort of uh, transitioning into the rise of China and focusing uh, on your roundhouse. I know we had the opportunity four or five days we were in Beijing um, and you had been there before, so you're a well-seasoned veteran, uh, but <laughs> you know, we're walking into Wouldn't say that, <laughs> a, a, different, a different political, economic climate for China uh, as opposed to when you were last there so what were your thoughts what were your feelings going into it um, and then you know walking away from the lectures what were your reflections yeah well this is actually um, I forgot to mention before but that's actually a, a lot of the a large part of why I got involved in China's studies in the first place why I even started to learn Mandarin um, because obviously China's been on the rise for a long time now and when I entered undergrad in 2009 I um, was studying international relations and I you know had minored in Spanish and I was like what language should I learn well what country do I think is gonna what language do I think is gonna be most useful and I looked at you know the most spoken languages debated between Hindi Chinese Arabic um, and you know uh, I wanted to learn a different system of writing, a language with a different system of writing, and I realized that China was gonna be more and more important in this international system. And just because of their huge economic growth and their huge population, you know, I thought there's no way that they're not gonna continue to make huge ripples in the international system. So um, Bringing it back to what you were saying about WTO reform, we were talking about the reason that the U.S. isn't approving these, uh, you know, judges to the appellate body, um, and is kind of seemingly stunting what the WTO is capable of, is because the U.S. isn't happy with the way the system is built to. It's not built to deal with countries like China. Is the U.S.'s argument right? Um, and I would agree with that. And that's also partially because the WTO was uh, founded in 
19, it was agreed upon in 94 and, you know, started becoming an operation in 95. And um, before that, it was the GATT General Agreement on Trades and Tariffs. And, um, and basically, um, we're coming to this stage where the United States is being threatened by the rise of China. And we're trying to find ways to check their rise. And we're hearing directly from Chinese, you know, professors that China's going to rise, you know, and <laughs> it's kind of like the U.S. needs to make space for that. And it's this, this kind of seesaw, this back and forth of economic cooperation, economic cooperation, you know, what like there's they're increasing their military capacity at the same time. Um, you know, there's this term Comerica which refers to the interdependence, the economic interdependence that you're just referring to. And um, it's like these countries rely on each other for economic uh, growth, for their overall, especially for trading goods. It's just overwhelming how much these two countries trade and affect the entire uh, world trading system. Um, but, you know, seeing with this rise of China, U.S. trying to check it, um, I did a lot of thinking of how much mistrust there is in between these two countries and you know what is that based on is that just based on the fact that we have you know very different political systems where one is called communist you know they have more of a capitalist um, economic mindset than they used to but a lot of things are still state directed yeah, um, SOEs yeah, the SOEs are huge, um, and you know they're getting all this government support. Uh, a lot of the planning for what will be done in the economy is done by the government. You know, there's planning. And the fact that there is planning, you know, means that it's not necessarily, it's not completely capitalistic yet. Anyway, the political system too is just there's one party. Um, although some Chinese will debate that they're technically other parties, but you know, there's one party uh, for all intents and purposes. Whereas in the U.S. we have a different system. And I think, you know, that is part of this breeding of mistrust. But is a lot of it potentially also due to the media and how we project each other's countries, you know, within our own country? Um, how does the Communist Party paint the United States and what they're doing with the trade war, with other actions? Like, do they, you know, show that? from a unbiased perspective, I mean, probably not, you know, this is what we see. And the same goes for U.S. If we look at our articles about what China's doing, newspaper articles, it's, it's definitely... Like, we're still living in a world of constructivist, you know, type mentalities. Exactly. Um, so these... And China's becoming more nationalistic. Um, so, you know, these... Uh, U.S. obviously has, has been for a long time. Um, very proud of our countries, which is good, but can also be dangerous. Um, and Euthydides trap, or how yeah, do you say that? Thucydides. Um, so that, that guy, you know, who's? Are we gonna have a war? Or is it gonna go past a trade war? Is it inevitable, or just because one power is rising and threatens the other one, or you know, are we Why gonna find a way we to be friends? compromise, get along, <laughs> Come spread on. the love? But basically. Um, there's this one point that stuck with me a lot, especially from that one professor who was saying that China's rising, we need to make a move, that the U.S. needs to make space for that and move over a little bit. Um, 
he said uh, he was referring to just if we look back at basic like meta philosophy of kind of how these two countries operate and this is a generalization you know it's not that everyone believes this but if we look at you know some of the norms of what our um, political system is based on you know he said what did he say um, it was something about the need for control um, let's see if I can find it he oh, said no. if there's too much freedom people will support local ideologies and separate referring to like how the integrity of China is you know it there's not a lot it's fragile so he said so we need to use coercive power from a powerful government in order to keep the society in balance and like the minute you hear that you're just like what the what what's going on here you know like completely different from like did he really just say that yeah yeah and like I think this is something that we had a back and forth on and like trying to understand from China's perspective and you know China is huge it, it one would argue it's too big to govern and in order to like streamline uh, a strong sense of governance and balance within the country you kind of have to you know be like a communist party back here on Miss Radio uh, to discuss further uh, the rise of China and just overall uh, Benjamin Willem's perspective uh, during the East Asian practicum experience abroad. Um, yeah, we left off on the note of, you know, I think what we were saying is the streamlined governance that we see with the one-party system in China and how that's played a role since, you know, um, it, it kind of taking over in 1949, was it? Yes. Um, and then, of course, we had the, the opening up and reform in 1978. So do you think that China is the Communist Party or is the Communist Party China? Or how, And how does that look like from speaking to uh, uh, Chinese people? Hmm. So I don't know. <laughs> That's a good I'll start. Start by being honest. I I don't. I mean, I, my impression is that you know, if you look back, China is, as I said, one of the oldest civilizations. It dates back over five thousand years, and um, the Communist Party has only come around, you know, seventy years ago. So, the fact that that alone shows that China is not the Communist Party, but at the same time. Right now, if you look at the current climate and how much control the Communist Party has, um, it kind of is China, at least currently. Um, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily represent all of China. China is a very unique uh, place because it's so huge, yet it's actually quite uh, homogeneous in the way that almost 90% of the population is Han Chinese. Um, Han ethnicity. Um, the reference that I think one of the professors was making to needing to use coercive measures to keep the state intact partially refers to the fact that there are these separatists, potentially separatist groups that exist. For example, in Xinjiang, the Uyghurs 
um, who don't share, you know, the same ethnicity, or in Tibet, you know, where we've got these different, um, different minority groups within China and um, the Communist Party trying to control that and make sure that everything stays together in order to, you know, not appear fragmented, yet at the same time, you know, there clearly are some, uh, some of these schisms within society uh, that, you know, some scholars have argued will be, you know, the, uh, you know, deciding factor in the future of China and could end up bringing it, bringing it to its knees, whereas other people think that, you know, it's not going to be that much of an issue. Um, but, you know, the Communist Party has obviously played a huge role, and uh, they've really kept their um, approval there uh, from the people because of economic uh, growth that they've been able to provide. And that really started with Deng Xiaoping being the revolutionary he was and allowing uh, China to open up. Yet they've still done it very carefully in a way that they've kept certain things protected and have still kept you know, a very close eye on how things are growing um, and directing it in certain ways, picking winners and losers. And, um, you know, the guy, the director of the um, Stanford Center at Beijing University was saying that um, this attempt, this trade war is an attempt, uh, as well as the WTO issues we mentioned before is an attempt by the United States to check China's rise um, and to say, hey, you know, China, what you're doing is quote unquote unfair, you know, um, because they're not playing by the rule book. But, you know, this also raises the question of why is that wrong? They're just doing it be just for the same reasons any nation would, you know, uh, to help out their people, to gain... Um, to gain a lot for the country in order to stay in power, right? Um, and that's their legitimacy. That's the, what their legitimacy is based on. Yeah, you're um, not going to argue a country's sovereignty, you know, over, you know, their political agenda. Exactly. Um, so, you know, now there's this, you see a switch um, to Xi Jinping thought, um, and this is the kind of <laughs> almost almost a make China great again kind of attitude of. You know, China has, you know, in the late 1800s was divided up the carving out of China by European powers. So there was this kind of disgrace about China's used to be the most powerful and largest economy in the world for hundreds of years. For, you know, more, if you look at the bigger picture, it's spent more time being the most powerful country in the world than most others have. Um, it's just that it also closed off and was isolationist for a long time, um, which led to it, you know, missing out on a lot of the technological developments of the Industrial Revolution and so right. forth. Um, but I digress. Basically, uh, what I'm trying to say is, you know, the trade war um, and these attempts on the WTO are, are attempts by the Trump administration to shift, potentially it was shifting already, but, you know, make American foreign policy more... Uh, more vocal about making checking China's rise and saying, hey, you need to play by the rules of the game. But, you know, who wrote the rules of the game? The United States and other Western powers did. So what is truly fair here? I don't know. It's up for debate. Um, 
but uh, they've got this big expansionist policy of, you know, they've got this investment-driven growth that they've pretty much saturated domestically. Um, and they're still trying to find ways, like with the uh, Greater Bay Area experiment that they're doing right now, still, you know, finding ways to build more infrastructure domestically. But they've really exported this abroad um, to continue this investment-driven growth. Um, and they're building you know, railways, ports, investing in these other countries. And, um, you know, largely in Africa, they've been doing it for a long time. Now more and more aggressively in Central Asia, um, even over to Eastern Europe. And you see increasing investment in Latin America as well. So they're touching, you know, all regions across the world. Um, and this is part of the um, Belt and Road Initiative, BRI. And... Um, it seems like the trade war is really, and it is in some ways being successful in putting pressure on China because it's bringing them to the negotiating table and potentially forcing them to rethink some of the ways that they go about achieving this economic growth. Um, the U.S. isn't happy with them stealing uh, intellectual property rights or causing these um, or demanding tech transfers through joint venture enterprises when other countries sorry, when other companies enter into the Chinese market. Um, so it's really this, it's more nuanced than Trump would say in terms of a trade balance issue. The trade balance only points to the fact that when, a, when there's such a glaring large trade balance for such a long time, that can potentially point to these issues uh, of like... It's more of a symptom than the actual... Right, it definitely. It's, it's a symptom, not the actual problem here. Um, because the U.S. is, um, you know, the, uh, is the de facto foreign currency reserve of the world, therefore, or sorry, the, the reserve currency of the world, and therefore will always run an account deficit, um, current account deficit. So that's just, you know, economics. But at the same time, we're, you know, we're a huge consumer society, and um, but this trade deficit does point to other issues that might underlie um, the unfair way that China is rising. If you look at though, I think a really interesting point though is to look at what one of the scholars said um, when we were at um, where was it? I think it was at the Foreign University of Foreign Affairs in Beijing. Um, anyway. He was referring to Chinese investment in, um, in Africa, especially in agriculture. And he said something that really stuck with me about the way that we think about development and the way we think about um, the way we think, like the World Bank and the IMF have tried to help countries get out of tough situations. Um, the U.S. has always put, and the U.S. and Western um, nations have put all this conditionality on loans. Um, and basically what he was saying was that he agreed that Western conditional way of giving aid is better for long-term development because it you know, demands that countries uh, increase their property rights, uh, increase uh, their level of transparency, that they reduce corruption, things like that. But he also says it's not necessarily practical. And he said, 
does a man become good and then deserve to get food? Or do they first need food in order to become good? And I don't know which one is true, but these are clearly the differences that we see in terms of the developmental models proposed by China, which has a very um, non-interference-based um, investment model, and the United States and other Western countries, which have said, you know, if you want these loans, if you want this help, then you have to behave in this Western way. Excellent, excellent point. Um, and, and those are highlighting things that I, that I could definitely back up just from listening to those lectures. Um, that's pretty much on point with what they were saying, uh, both in Beijing and then also the Japanese perspective on China's rise. Um, so you see we're entering a new age. Not only have we been existing in this information age, where and also uh, age of uh, spin, you know, where you know I think our morals, our values, our culture, due to globalization, due to internet and social media, we see a shift of how we behave as individuals, not only in the U.S. but in other countries and other cultures. I mean, we were on the waiting for a subway in Japan, and we'd look over to the left and look over to the right, and everyone would be glued to their cell phone. And I'm sitting here like, oh wow, that's that's far more uh, a higher usage of the cell phone than what you would see in a subway system in the U.S. It might be comparable, but um, so you see the shift in uh, how we observe each other in, in different cultures and how that might shape, you know, how we view each other's policies, um, and we're getting firsthand looked at, at, at these different uh, countries through um, just being there, you know, and just observing. Um, and through those powerful experiences, uh, just, just as we're concluding, what are some of the things that you will be taking into, you know, your walk in life? Um, I know we've talked about that you're going to be going to China this summer uh, for the Critical Language Scholarship Program, and you'll be there two, three months. Um, what are your plans moving forward? How has this experience really impacted uh, you in your future? Hmm. My future. <laughs> Big question. <laughs> How much do you think about that? Big question. Try not to think about it too much. Um, but, you know, try to go step by step, day by day. Here we go. Um, let's project. Where do I see myself 15 years in the future? No. Um, <laughs> Got asked that question at a job interview the other day. I was like, oh, God, um, 15 years, I'll be how old? Oh, um, basically, um, yeah, this trip was super enlightening in terms of um, seeing what I, thinking about, you know, my personal preferences and what I think and what I like and just in a whole, like, from my ego judging things sense, um, I tried to think, all right, you know, do I like Japan more? Or do I like China more? Um, which culture resounds, like, which, which one resonates more with me uh, in my heart, in my brain? And, you know, I like them both a lot. And they're so different, 
like polar opposites in so many ways from just how a conversation is held. I think that's actually one of the biggest. Like if you see people uh, like daily interactions in Japan, it's very respectful. It's more quiet. It's tame. It's Impala. Um, tame Impala. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's it's beautiful in this very um, almost constrained way. I mean, at least that's how it feels to me as a Westerner, right? Um, it's it's full of these rituals that are you know crucial to maintaining this uh, societal harmony, and then. In China, they also, you know, really, really um, value the societal harmony. But in terms of daily interactions, it is chaos, you know. And that's also beautiful to me in a different way because it's exciting. And people are seem like they have this wild amount of energy where every conversation is yelling. <laughs> and it seems aggressive, but you... And maybe it is in some ways because when you've got so many people and it's still a developing country, it's kind of like there's people aren't going to line up. You got to you know rush to get yours at the beginning of the line um, or the beginning of the horde. Um, you know, it's everyone is kind of racing at their own pace in China, whereas in Japan it's like you wait for the person before you. And that's not just in terms of lines, but in terms of just like the way everything goes. Like, you see it in the subway. You see it on when you're driving, um, with the in taxis. Like, it's, and that has I guess impacted my my thought process in terms of like I definitely want to go back, just because having these four days in each place was, I felt like just a preview for me of Japan and. I want to go back and experience more of it. And as for China, it was a reminder of how much I missed being there. I hadn't been back since 2014 when I studied in Hangzhou for the summer. And now I'll get the chance to go back again for a longer period of time um, and you know, ruminate more on these, on these uh, ideas. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's so cool because such different cultures... Um, different from each other, different from the United States, and I you know, can't wait to spend more time in both of them, and for now that will definitely be China because I'm focusing on uh, my Mandarin, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I just I can't wait to see how their bilateral relationship, the multilateral relationships that they're forming within Asia, um, you know, it's so complex and um, seeing how this you know plays out over time um, in their interactions with larger multilateral organizations like the WTO um, will be you know fascinating to see you know how it plays out and um, how the rise of China also affects um, the United States and how Japan deals with that and their relation their close relationship with the United States. So you know until next time you know we'll stay stay posted. Uh, on the news and see see what happens. Indubitably, uh, <laughs> it's been it's been awesome uh, being able to share this experience with you. Um, I know 
we had some crazy times in uh, <laughs> East Asia that we didn't get to on this podcast. Don't miss the flight. Don't miss the flight, folks. Um, we did it. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, <laughs> that's another sta- story for another day. But uh, <laughs> needless to say, we got back home safe. And uh, oh man, I'm, I'm glad to call you friend. And um, I'm glad our energies were able to meet in the same same spot. You know, same time. Agreed. Couldn't have asked for a better uh, travel partner throughout the East Asia practicum. Angela is a great, very calm, chill person to have through stressful situations, just so so everyone knows. <laughs> most most times. Sometimes. Ah. No, all the time. All, the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. On that note, guys, uh, thank you for listening. And that's a wrap. Crying out for help. Don't want a handout. Thank you.